Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier this month, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention released its latest report on U.S. fertility rates. It made some news since they're down and continue the trend of generally being below replacement levels since 1971. The U.S. is not alone. Fertility rates are down below replacement in lots of developing countries. We're going to talk about how our global systems helps create that situation with Heidi Nast. She's a cultural geographer at the uh, DePaul University in the International Studies Department, and I've talked with her previously about her book, Pedophilia. Good to t- see you again, Heidi. Nice to see you, Jerome. Should we think that Populations going down is um, is such a bad thing. Is it okay that populations go down? We're trying. We're, we're stressing the planet out as it is. Is that uh, generally it, people perceive it sometimes as a good thing? I think any graphable pattern in itself doesn't explain anything. It's not good or it's bad. It really depends on. Um, the structural processes producing that decline. And of course, at one level, we definitely need to kind of give the planet time to refresh itself. We are on the precipice of extinction, human extinction. But I think it's the reasons why those fertility rates are going down that's really problematic. So it's not that it's going down or going up. It's more about the political economic um, conditions. How do you think about that? What do you think about these political forces and economic forces that are shaping how we do things? Well, I think that there's been a lack or general lack of attention paid to um, kind of looking at fertility decline in terms of um, two main parts of any economy, which is production and consumption. There's been a lot on whether states encourage, like if you have a pronatalist policy or an antinatalist policy. Uh, There are many countries that want to discourage, for example, um, Roma populations or, um, you know, uh, different kinds of usually indigenous populations that you don't want to Reproduce, So there are often state measures that are taken against them. Um, and then there are others that are encouraged to reproduce. But I think what we have to understand is the economic processes that really compel people to have children. And I think the only place where people are really compelled to have children are in places where machinery is not readily available and they're kind of living a bare life existence, um, farming um, without really many capital inputs. And so you're going to have higher fertility rates in those places. It wasn't that long ago that people in the U.S. had 10 children because it was thought to be good economics to have 10 children. That's how you survive. And there's lots of places in the globe that are still like that. Yes. And and, and you would call that variable capital. Uh, And variable capital is very expensive when you start becoming industrialized. So when you're part of a family farm or an extended family, uh, it's – really important to have lots of children. They provide the workforce, and traditionally the mother 
has been considered the site of value production in terms of she produces the labor. So her fertility rate is going to be not only high, but it's going to be celebrated. Children will be celebrated. There will be a culture and a geography around um, the child. But when you start having, um, you know, industry, and in particular industrial capitalism, and even before that um, with uh, mercantilism, um, when you start uh, bringing machinery in, eventually you're not going to need as many children. And you're going to start replacing children with machines. And that is going to put downward pressure on fertility rates. So you're not going to be having 10 kids when there's really only enough jobs to give to two or three. In our globalized society, it seems like the developed countries have figured out what to do about their lack of labor, cheap labor in their situation. They go they go abroad and they find it. They go to the places where there is cheap labor. And I mean, we've seen a generation of people uh, in China make all our own stuff. Now China's not making as much stuff. They, they've got some machines doing it, I guess. And it's moving some of the manufacturing goes other places. This is the kind of thing you're talking about. Yes. In the case of China, it's a little bit different. Um, if you think about the U.S. and Europe uh, and Japan, there's a kind of tracking of fertility rates with increasing efficiency of machinery. So if you think about early textile machinery, it still had a lot of labor around it. If you were to pull up an image of textile machinery now, there'd be nobody. So even, you know, the, as I mentioned, the variable capital, which is the human being, the labor, uh, you want that ratio of variable capital to constant capital, which is your machine. You want it to go down to zero although that presents its own contradictions. So China, um, in, I think it was around 1979, it had, it mandated a one-child policy only for urban areas. And it did so because it was also developing its open-door policy for foreign direct investment. And um, Deng Xiaoping knew that by combining both um, tremendous foreign investment, direct investment, with lower family size, that you could dramatically increase the standard of living, which he did. So today, uh, China has the largest middle class in the world. Uh, it has the fastest growing economy. And um, it is now facing some of the same problems of reproduction, as you mentioned, that other countries are. I'm talking with Heidi Nass from DePaul University, and we're discussing uh, lower fertility rates in the U.S. and, and how they relate to the, what's going on in the rest of the world. What, what does this do to us um, in, a, in a cultural standpoint? I mean, what, what is, how is this changing our society in ways that we maybe don't think about all the time? Mm-hmm. And that's another <laughs> complicated question because I think, again— there are, uh, it's a structural effect. I mean, how we're feeling is a, a kind of effect of all of the other things that are going on. So I think that with it, it, the fact that we now have increasing levels of automation in wealthy nations, it should be very clear that the geographies are very distinct, um, that there is going to be more what we call socio-spatial alienation, meaning the community spaces are not as stable 
Um, the personal relationships are not as stable. People are moving many times in their lifetime. There's a lot more precarity in the workforce uh, because the machines, as you mentioned, have gone largely to other places, China being key among them, but also Mexico. Uh, So there's also a change in the kind of work that people are doing. So you might have heard of the recent um, Princeton study where it looked at levels of suicide that are really high in the United States and the particular demography are those that went through the 1980s recession when a lot of um, primarily white working class men lost union jobs. And so there's both uh, the ways in which following the oil crisis, a lot of machinery left the United States uh, and other Western countries for places with cheaper labor. But then what happened to those men and women that were left behind. Um, It was very, very difficult. You know, I was noticing in the CDC report on our fertility rates that there are places in the United States that have higher fertility rates that are maybe close to replacement level, and there are places that are a lot down. And they tend to patch together in interesting ways. It's South Dakota, North Dakota, and Nebraska with high fertility rates. And um, I imagine the thing that's happening all over the globe is kind of happening in the United States in a in a smaller condensed fashion that that there are places where lots of children are a help or more children are a help like uh, the Midwest if you're in this rural community and there are places where they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be interested to see um, if that is addressing also the Native communities um, because I think that um, those communities are very isolated and don't have the same kinds of resources that other people might have in terms of looking at birth control or not having children. So it'd be interesting to parse that between, let's say, a farming, you know, there aren't any real old farming families anymore. Um, But I also think that um, when we talk about uh, undocumented workers in this country, we fail to recognize that they are helping to buoy up um, the numbers in this country that are needed to actually be productive because otherwise we would be more or less fading away and not being as productive as we've managed to be. And uh, I mean, everybody always wants to know how we're going to pay for our social security or something if if we don't have more workers coming in to, to support the, the pyramid. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and this is happening in Japan and Spain absolutely. and Italy, everywhere. China. Mm-hmm. Which, until recently, didn't have. Uh, yeah, that's um, it's it's interesting actually because in uh, 2005 they had demographers are way ahead of the curve on this. I mean, the CDC might have come out with this study, but um, there are demographers that have been scrambling all of this data from a very early standpoint. Um, most defense departments are invested in this. Um, for instance, in um, the Soviet Union, uh, after the fall of Soviet Union, um, you know, Vladimir Putin has been very <laughs> exercised about why the fertility rate in there is so bad. So he has tried since, um, you know, like 2006, I think, was his first initiative to get women to start procreating. Not, again, realizing that they're not procreating because it's devastatingly uh, difficult to find work that can sustain you. So um, 
there's no point in having children if you can't provide for them, which is one of the reasons that we see in the context of um, the former Soviet Union, the emergence of something called the Natasha trade, where a lot of childbearing women of that age are actually being exported out to other countries for recreational sex rather than procreational sex. So there's a, a difference. And then more recently, he came up with what something he called maternity capital, where he was trying to encourage women and he actually gave them a little bit more significant of an incentive. But again, um, it's it's insufficient and it's problematic for Russia because it has this huge uh, border area and so few um, uh, people in the army that are able to patrol it. And uh, there is also a lot of um, alcoholism and um, um, ill health amongst a lot of Russian men because of the economic situation. So a lot of them are not even allowed into the military. So it's a real problem for a number of countries for a number of reasons. Uh, is the solution, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, better, uh, you know, Swedish model uh, of, of uh, like helping families and uh, having good schools and all the, you know, having child care and all the things you would you would want in if you were going to raise a person. Is that uh, the kind of thing that Vladimir Putin and the United States should be looking more into? Well, um, they have looked at Sweden and. Sweden's fertility rate has gone up slightly. Germany has started taking some steps towards giving men more um, uh, paternal leave, uh, very generous paternal leave. Even Japan, Abe says he's going to be giving paternity leave, but the problem in Japan is that a lot of the men are ridiculed. Um, it's seen as very unmanly to actually assume any kind of reproductive responsibility. So the, the, the thing is, is that, you know, Sweden has very high taxation rate. That won't go over extremely well. Uh, it also has um, a larger, uh, more equitable distribution of income. Uh, when you're working in a place that has a lot of oligarchs and a lot of poor and it's very export-oriented, very extraction-oriented, like in the case of Russia, uh, that's not possible to change that whole metric of gender relations to something like Sweden. Uh, so if the social safety net doesn't work, um, what is a good way forward here? Well, I think... There are many things. There are both the structural, there's the structural component when I was talking about production and machinery and automation and so on. And also, I, you know, I didn't mention that um, in the absence of the family, uh, particularly the, the, the image of the maternal, um, the market has responded by having a plethora of goods and services that are meant to kind of baby you. So the, the idea of a special uh, spas, you know, hot wax treatments, everything that kind of makes you melt. Um, and 
cuddle therapy is a new um, a new province of things as well. Adult male breastfeeding is a new phenomenon. So there are all these these goods and services. Adult male breastfeeding is a new phenomenon. It is, yeah. Um, it usually is poor women. Uh, in the context of Japan and China, in the United States, it's more of a, a large fetish community. But these are women who are. Um, uh, given birth and lactating. And, and um, so my, my point is that there's a lot of infantilizing, not just of men, but of all of those of us in privileged nation states where we can go somewhere and very cheaply get our hands and nail, you know, our, our, our pedicure and manicure for $40, $45, when back in the day, it was only celebrities. And that has to do with uh, refugees from Vietnam coming in and, and learning how to give uh, services that we get racially discounted because we don't really give the same kind of, of wage to a person uh, from Vietnam than we would to the old Hollywood um, celebrities who would get their nails done by people that were considered um, kind of upper echelon. So now we're kind of into the emotional deficit that we face from low fertility rates. Is that what to, how would you, how do you, what do you call it? Well, again, I would put it structurally in terms of markets. Markets need to make money, and they're stepping in where the family and the mother in particular is not. So um, when you think about uh, a, a, a very large range of goods and services that are new since the oil crisis and since we started shifting our machines and production outside the United States and outside other Western nations, um, we are becoming increasingly infantilized because we have to consume more now than we ever did. So um, I grew up in a family of 10, and the rate of consumption across all of us was relatively low. But now um, we have to make up for that in families with one. So you're going to have every part of your body uh, marketed to, and you're going to realize that you don't need one face soap. You need something for under your eyes, uh, your chin, under your nose. Your lips are completely different, of course, et cetera, so that you have 12 products, uh, whereas before you had one. So I think the market has responded to falling fertility rates by intensifying in, uh, consumption and making marketing into a real industry. I'm talking with Heidi Nash. She's a cultural geographer at the International Studies Department at DePaul University. And we're talking about falling fertility rates and some of the implications. And we'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Earlier this month, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention released its latest report on U.S. fertility rates. They're down again. And we are talking about the impact of that with Heidi Nash. She's a cultural geographer at International Studies at DePaul University. And we've talked with her previously about her book, Pedophilia. Um, Heidi, we were getting into some interesting territory there uh, before the break, and uh, fertility rates going down results in all sorts of um, differing different things start happening with gender. Um, that it, is, it seems to be happening in our country. What what is uh, what is the idea there? Well, again, it's it's not directly coming out of um, falling fertility rates are falling for a reason, and when you have automation and increasingly um, what I call the constant capital, the machines that are taking over from the variable capital, which is human, you're freed from reproduction um, because you're increasingly freed, let's say. So if you start off with a, a large farm family and as your machinery gets more and more efficient and finally automated and you're kicked out entirely, there's a range where that machine is actually gradually pushing your fertility rate down. Um, so when you are freed from procreation or, uh, from reproduction, then you're no longer kind of culturally and geographically, depending upon where you are, invested in what you might call procreational sex. There's, you're essentially, even heterosexuals are having mostly recreational sex, which then also allows the body to be much more fluid and um, can be parsed very differently. Uh, it's kind of a complicated argument about how that fits in also with markets because you no longer need the farm family to provide for you. You can go into a Target or a uh, Best Buy or a Costco. So the kind of heterosexual compact that once produced children that grew everything and that were considered the source of value, machine is the value. Therefore, the bodies are kind of open to reinvention. And so I think um, looking at, um, you know, lesbian, gay, uh, transsexual, and so on, it's not just transsexuals who are surgically altering their bodies. It's a lot of heterosexuals as well. And um, it's not only uh, transsexual, but people are also experimenting with uh, subdermal implants and, you know, all kinds of um, body art that are making the body very far from its evolutionary past. Well, what do we – should we think of that as uh, an attempt to get – the, the things that the body needs. The body is looking for um, a place to get its needs satisfied, a market that satisfies its needs. Is that it? Yeah, I think that the market has really responded, as I, I think we closed um, the, the last segment. Um, the market has turned into an industry. And with falling fertility rates, how are you going to maintain levels of consumption if the points of purchase are are disappearing? So Japan is, um, I think it was from 2011 to 2040, will lose 25% of its population. What are investors supposed to think when they go in there and they're hoping that their profit margins will increase and yet they know the number of mouths to feed or the bodies to be clothed are disappearing? 
who would like to go in there? This is a real question, and it's not just for Japan. It's for all countries where the markets are disappearing demographically. So you can imagine there are all kinds of imaginative ways that you could work around that. You could intensify consumption. Uh, as I mentioned uh, last segment, you could come up with all different kinds of things you never knew you needed. Uh, you can, instead of getting one manicure, uh, get two manicures a week. Um, you can intensify needs or perceived needs, and that's what marketing does, is it makes you, it creates needs. Um, but at the same time, it can feed off identities. So if you have uh, lesbian and transsexual identities, uh, which is something um, that a theorist, uh, John D'Amelio, uh, here in Chicago had mentioned with capitalism and gay identity that the markets allow you to live outside the heterosexual family and therefore free you to experiment. Um, and and I'm adding to that by looking at how the machine allows for those markets to be so full. Uh, so when you um, have all those markets, you can then kind of clothe your identity and commodify your identity so that no matter how small your niche identity is, you can have your own bars, your own clubs, your own drinks, your own whatever. Well, what about all the efforts? You know, how do you look at people well, like Donald Trump or the Pope? They seem to want to have traditional identities and traditional ideas that that. Um, but they also want people to um, to procreate more. Uh, what what kind of uh, what kind of market do they want? They they seem to want a different thing, but they're pursuing it in very different ways, obviously, and don't seem to be in in alliance about anything. But they're they're. Um, how do they fit in? I think that the desire to go back to a time when industry was swelling and people could have a decent-sized family and um, there was some illusion of an American, you know, the American dream is over. And because now... Uh, Donald Trump is kind of championing a kind of accumulation of wealth that is actually antithetical to the American dream that he seems to stand for. There's a contradiction. And I think that in the end, those contradictions will go away because it can't be sustained. So he may, just like a lot of the uh, you know, white supremacist groups, their days are numbered. I mean, it, you know, you can't sustain that rhetoric as the population itself is changing and things move on. Do you get the feeling like populations are at threat when when their populations are shrinking? Is it um, are are we you know extincting the species in some way? That's a that's a really good question. I think um I think that we might be feeling some of that anxiety in xenophobia. So there may be a sense that's coming from falling fertility rates that is really complicated to discuss, but when you think about um the those who are coming over the border from Mexico who may be undocumented it has to do primarily with farm families, people from rural areas who have already been displaced as a result of foreign direct investment going in and uh, 
buying up lands, but also the removal of subsidies for corn that at one point could allow them to sustain themselves with their own corn um, production. Now it's being uh, displaced by cheap corn from the U.S. All of those farming uh, interests have moved to the border and they cross over and they do have large families and they do help sustain our fertility rate. But um, in terms of... um, the threat, there might be a perceived threat because there are numerous, many people, just like in China, the pre-Deng Xiaoping, there were many Chinese people. There had been during Mao's time a pro-natalist policy. And then there's kind of foreign direct investment is feeding off the children of these farm families that are now being displaced. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it's like there's a loosening of agrarian populations all over the world as foreign direct investment kind of goes in and buys up those lands. They get loosened. They go to the borders. They start leaving. They start going into places that are more privileged, um, those who typically have colonized in the past. So, for example, Algerians in France or um, Kurds in Germany. So the the problem then is, you know, on the one hand – the jobs have been removed from those that used to be really plum jobs. And now all these other people are coming in taking really low level service jobs, but there's still an antagonism as though they've taken their jobs, although they had nothing to do with that takeover, if that <laughs> um, makes sense. Yeah. Well, is uh, the colonial aspect of this, this is kind of uh, a colonial argument that, that um, the United States and however you perceive its relationship with Mexico or, France and Algeria or Germany and the Kurds, they're, um, they're kind of uh, dominating the, the populations in a almost uh, yeah. un, un, unintentionally creating all these results, these, these Yeah, markets. I think that's a good point. I think um, if we can think about the industrializing nations and the Industrial Revolution of England, they were not keen to take that advanced machinery and put it in Uganda or Congo. They wanted to enslave and bring them, you know, grow coffee in Brazil or sugar in the Caribbean or, you know, those industrial machines were being used to provide um, wage labor for largely white workers and the productivity gave them a pretty good wage in comparison, even though the beginning wages were quite awful in comparison to the slaves, let's say, in Haiti. So um, the slaves in Haiti were helping to subsidize the lives of the white working class. So as a result, it's in those early industrial nations which really saw themselves as highly productive. And that's one of the kind of tricks of speech where Today, you might say, who is the most productive worker in the world? And you imagine it's a body. But you'll say, let's say, the U.S., and it's actually they're talking about their machinery. So the most productive worker is a kind of slip of the tongue where you're trying to make those people working feel good about themselves. And in the beginning, to be an industrial nation and an industrial man was quite quite a feat, Meanwhile, those left growing tea by hand, rubber, uh, you know, cocoa, um, coffee, all of those things are very low value and were 
really keeping people dependent on children for labor. So their fertility rates had to produce in order to do the kind of work that machines were not being allowed them, and they therefore were kind of living an alternative non-machine world. Are we going to see with um, the robotization of society, um, it's going to accelerate the effect of... uh, of machine of of uh, of our, our of the whole scenario. Yeah, I think um, again, that's a great question. Um, robotics have been there in the domain of production for a long time, and they're getting increasingly uh, better and better. And there's a great uh, BBC short clip of uh, the last worker on Earth. I think is the name of it, and. Um, she gets up and she does her routine and everything is automated. She's not feeling well. She goes to a machine It figures out what's wrong. It automatically gives her the medicine and so on. But it's in the domain of um, reproduction or consumption or, you know, reproduction services. So that's where the big markets are opening up. And that is even going to more completely replace what I would call the maternal so you're getting elder bots in Germany, uh, sorry, in, in Japan. Um, you're getting, um, you know, the sex bots uh, for relationships um, in the United States, uh, China, and Japan. You're getting uh, service bots that are like there's Paro the Baby Seal, which is about $5,000, but uh, you can take it to uh, old people's homes or uh, dementia facilities, um, critical care units, and these robotic seals are hygienic. Unlike a service dog that comes in, you don't have to worry about it soiling the floor or having an allergy. So things are getting more and more rational in terms of reproduction and taking care of people. And this is most pronounced in Japan, which has only 1%, 2% of immigrants, the rest are Japanese, and they are so set against having any kind of non-Japanese labor that they are at the forefront of creating um, uh, reproductive robotics or domestic robots. Um, is that good? <laughs> is that uh, um, a you know more positive situation for humankind to be? Uh, it doesn't sound like it's very good. I mean, we're, we're, it, we, we want human beings, don't we? We would, we would prefer human, uh, we would be psychologically better off if we had more human contact. I Again, I don't think it lies in fertility rates. It has to do, like you mentioned earlier, um, it might be good to have falling fertility rates and give the planet a break. But it has to do with why are fertility rates going down? And again, if you look at Russia, it has to do with massive unemployment and and uh, the rise of oligarchs. Um, if you look at the United States, it has to do with automation and the rise of narcissistic consumption. So whether you have kids or don't have kids in that context is irrelevant because the context itself is what's really of value to analyze. So I would say that... Um, we have to think about how to live outside the market, and um, we have to think about forms of radical kinship and 
maybe more radical forms of production and reproduction that are not going to be guided by just profit-seeking for profit's sake, because ultimately that's making people um, peripheral. Uh, you know, I went. I saw Roma over the weekend, and it's essentially about uh, creating a more unconventional family and creating love in a more unconventional family. Is that the deal? Is that where where we got to go? I'm not sure that radical kinship or radical family making is n- n- about hunkering down and having a survivalist context that'll help you get through things. I think it's about undoing and it's about coming up with a very different imagination of what's of value. And right now, one of the reasons that we have such an uneven geography of fertility, some countries are practically disappearing and others are going along, uh, is has to do with inequality and access to resources. And we can't really undo any of that without looking at the system that is leading to that unequal access to resources. Heidi Nast is a cultural geographer at the International Studies Department at DePaul University. We've talked previously with her about her book, Pedophilia. And thanks a lot for joining us and talking about fertility rates and the CDC's um, latest report that U.S. fertility rates are down. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're winding down to the final performances of Chicago Shakespeare's Big in Belgium series. Us and Them is at Chicago Shakespeare through this weekend. With me is Doreen Saig. She's manager of international special projects at uh, Chicago Shakespeare. Good to see you again. Nice to see you too. Explain what the Big in Belgium thing was all about. Yeah, so um, we've seen, as part of our World Stage series, this incredible wave of work coming out of Belgium. Um, And there's a a great highlight um, of it in in Edinburgh every summer. And we wanted to bring that that highlight and focus to Chicago. Um, We've had three very different pieces by artists that we feel like are – shifting the form and, and making work in really exciting ways. Uh, and now we're, we're at our, our third and a really, really special one. So let's find out a little bit about Us and Them, which is at Chicago Shakespeare through this weekend. With us are the two principal actors, Agita Parmatier and Roman Hauven, uh, Van Houtven. And we're uh, thank, glad to have you. Good to see you. Hi. Thanks, thanks for, for having us. Yeah. You know, this play is really interesting, I think, because of the topic. Um, Beslan was a, a situation people might have remembered. Uh, terrorists took 1,100 people hostage in a school, including 777 children. And there was a big raid on the hostage takers. And a lot of people died, 334, 186 of the children died. Um and the play is about how children uh, look at this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, can you explain a little bit where this uh, comes from, Gita? Do you, do you want to take a whack at that? Okay. Um, well, to start our director, Carly Weiss, 
She had a son at that time. Uh, the performance is made in 2014. Uh, at that time, her son was uh, almost nine years old, and she noticed that he started to um, uh, broaden his world. Uh, so he from instead of just looking at himself and his friends, he would start to look a bit at what goes outside, uh, what goes on outside of the school. Um, but all this uh, was without an emotional connotation. So he would see the news and he would talk to his mother about what he saw on the news. Say, uh, for example, that... Um, uh, can you can you help me there? That there uh, was a shooting in, in Africa um, and a lot of people died. And then... Um, just shortly after that the uh, largest pumpkin ever was harvested in America <laughs> and then he would say that he was a little bit hungry and ask his mom to play with his iPad all with the same intensity the same emotional comment or lack of emotional connotation just yeah um, describing everything that would pop up into his head so she wanted to make a, a piece that could be a, uh, a starting point to talk about what happens in the world. She did not want to teach him what happened in Beslan uh, at all, but she wanted to be able to talk about what he sees on television on a daily basis, um, despiteful. Um, um, yeah, to have a, a way of getting into that topic. So in Us and Them, which is essentially two people, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you are the children in this play, and you are bringing that, that quality out that she saw in her son. Yeah, yes. We try to, at least. It was, that, was, that was an interesting um, thing to practice. Um, but our director, Carly, she mentioned something very interesting when we were rehearsing. She, she came up to us and she was like, just imagine the urge that kids have when they come up to you and they want to get something across, which is just the most important thing in their entire universe at that particular moment. Um, and if you just access that urge, that, that necessity to get something across, then it will be, it will be believable that you're kind of trying to, to portray a, a child or someone who, who is, yeah, that, that kind of age. And we were just talking about, too, that the, um, the pieces, it's not a documentary of what happened, right? It's, it's not a history lesson on the siege. It's really a, the, the experience of, of these two individuals. And, and so there's a lot of, um, uh, like, curiosity and joy and conflict and sort of waves of sadness and understanding. But as an audience member, you're really guided by that, like, urgency. Like, I have to share this thing with you right now. And so everything feels really special and heightened. Yeah. Yeah, um, and... It, it, you're also the choreographer, Roman, and if people looked at no. you're not? I am a choreographer, <laughs> but not choreographer? the choreographer. No. <laughs> Slight difference. Uh, the uh, staging of this play, it's yeah. got a lot of choreography to yeah, it. And, it, it and you are kind of creating a child environment in uh, a lot of ways. Well, um, the scenography helps a lot with it. I mean, we... Uh, the, the starting point from our uh, director, Carly, was to have the possibility to sometimes counter spoken word with movement or sometimes leave out the spoken word and, and just show how a child could maybe um, explain it in a very physical way. And that physical way then sometimes becomes choreography. Um, 
in attachment with the scenography that there is on stage, we have a massive labyrinth created out of a lot of strings that just go across stage. We kind of um, close the space that we have and that we use on stage to just crawl in between and over and under. And, and it, yeah, that, that's something that kids sometimes do. And, and Hita wants to add something Can to I, that. Uh, yeah, yeah sorry. please do. Um, well, I was thinking that um, uh, the, the movements and also the music actually are a tool uh, that we use uh, mostly when actually the story becomes too or might be too harmful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we try then to focus on the imagination of two children and the expression and the, the urge that what they want to, uh, no, not, not what they want to tell, but the urge of telling a story and not about the exact information that they give. Mm. So we want to, um, if there's information about the terrorists entering the school, it becomes a dance and a, a musical piece instead of, instead of a violent situation. And you can, it, it becomes... It, this will sound stupid, but it it becomes more like an abstract form, an uh, an abstraction, a form of art instead of a documentary. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. how true is that to what the children do? I mean, it sounds like the children are really factual, but then uh, this is an, an abstraction at the at the key points. Well, um, we based a lot of the piece on a documentary called Children of Beslan. And in that documentary, you can see children that were at the siege that experienced these three days. um, And they talk about this experience a couple of years later. Um, What is very clear is that they talk in this distant or objective manner. um, But, for example, there's a girl in the meantime while talking and while yeah, while not being moved, she's drawing stuff, and what she draws is is kind of horrifying. She she draws burning buildings and and bombs being exploded, but she's not watching what she's drawing. She's just talking about about how it was and that she was wearing her new skirt and and that her friend had very nice braids in her hair. And in the meantime, you see an an abstraction of what actually she feels. So I'm. I think it it has got a lot of yeah. fields touching, and the piece was uh, created for a, a, a theater that um, makes adult pieces that are accessible to to children. So it's it's intended for a, a youth audience, which is really interesting. I think yeah. in the U.S. because we really don't think of topics like this being intended for children. Um, but the the kids that we have had see this show are some of my favorite audience members. I mean, we had uh, someone come on, on on opening night, about ten years old, who um, said he loved the show, and his first comment was, "I don't know that all of the math they did was right." And really, like, and it, and it, and and they. Yeah. Said they've seen in sort of talkbacks with kids exactly that it's 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 what they latch on to um, is, is is really interesting. We're talking about the play Us and Them at Chicago Shakespeare through this weekend with Doreen Sag from Chicago Shakespeare and Gita Parmentier and Roman Van Houtven, the the actors in the piece. Um, so, what, how will people? What will people come away with at the end of this? What, what do you think the lesson is for audiences about the way kids do this? Is uh, is is it a, a good psychological defense? Is it different? If we, or we, I think the lesson for theater is a very uh, disturbing word, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to uh, per se give a lesson. I think no. well, it's very personal. But 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it just gives an insight into a possible way of how a child copes with severe situations. And it also, therefore, gives a possible way of communicating about um, severe or difficult situations, which we as adults do not necess- necessarily understand ourselves. So do not may, underestimate yeah. your children. Do not underestimate <laughs> your children. They're one. smart. <laughs> they have a lot of imagination. And and maybe through watching this piece, you you can start up a conversation. Yeah. yeah. And I'll say as a oh, go ahead. As an audience member, um, uh, I've, every time I see it, while I, I experience um, sort of the the sadness and somberness of the experience i'm also really inspired by by children by um by how they can bring so much joy into something and um and that's also why i love seeing the the, the kids in the audience because they um their responses sort of prove the point yeah, yeah. Agira, one more quick thing sorry <laughs> I, i think this is the right place to say that that uh, we um discuss the fact that everyone has got his own version of the same story Both Roman and I, we say that we tell the same story, but in a different way. Both the media, they tend to tackle it from different angles. Um, I think media here would be a good one. <laughs> Gita Parmatier and Roman van Houtven is uh, the actors in Us and Them. It is at Chicago Shakespeare through this weekend. Doreen Zeig, thanks for joining us and talking about uh, your Big in Belgium series. Congratulations. Thanks very much. Thanks for having Thank us. Tomorrow on Worldview, you can hear Stephen Perlstein, the Washington Post columnist and the author of Can Capitalism Survive? Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.